Digital Gonzo, episode 95, dated Thursday the 16th of August 2012, Avatar, The Last Airbender. There are times when constructing this podcast that I and my guests ask you to trust us. Mostly this isn't the case, and we're talking about very popular movies you'll already have seen, like Star Wars, Back to the Future, The Avengers, Safe Bets. Occasionally we'll cover something like World War Z, an excellent book that is written for adults and will set you back the grand total of five ninety nine. Or we'll suggest you read Batman Hush, a graphic novel aimed at adults and featuring a character you know very well. Right now, and on this very episode, if you will allow us, we are going to attempt to convince the 97% of you in the community that have not yet had the pleasure of this animated show that it is worth investing probably around £40 if you're buying the DVDs, nothing if you're watching it on Netflix, but definitely, either way, just over 20 hours of your life. I can assure you now that by the time many of you are finished, you will be thanking us from the bottom of your hearts for opening this doorway for you. In fact, I'm so confident that if you make a decision to invest your time and money into the show based on what we're about to say and the work we're going to liken it to, that you will be happy with the results that I'm offering the first Gonzo Planet solid gold guarantee. That means if you get to the end and you're not happy, contact me personally by email and we will sort something out. But I honestly don't think I'm going to be getting many emails. That is how confident I am on this. Assembled with me are some of Gonzo's finest, folks who feel very strongly about Avatar and are prepared to extensively discuss the whys and wherefores. First up, professional animator at Pixar, animation aficionado, and the voice and co-creator of the greatest animated lectures on the video games industry to be found on this internet. From extra credits, Mr. Daniel Floyd. Hello. Hello. Next, the creator of the Animation Archives, the first show of which was about Avatar and which convinced me to invest in the series in the first place, Mr. Joshua Garrity. Hello there. From Gonzo Planet, a long-time animation, anime and comic book fanatic, Mr. Jerome McIntosh. Good day, sir. Also of Gonzo Planet, the ever-patient, ever-passionate, long-suffering but always ready for more, Mrs. Sharon Shaw. Hello. And finally, having had his podcast cherry well and truly busted by Neil Taylor and myself on a recent KDS 2.0, Mr. Dwayne Griffiths, also known as Kai Enix Gideon, on the forums. Hello. This first instalment is going to be what I will now be calling a sizzle show. Imagine you're in a restaurant and the waiter is trying to make your mouth water about a particularly delicious dish, only this guy really loves what he's selling. There will be no spoilers. If you really don't want to know anything, then just go start watching now. And if you don't mind knowing a little more going in, please allow us to flesh out the world for you, much like we did with Game of Thrones. The Legend of Aang, which is called The Last Airbender in America, is composed of three seasons. 
Next week we'll be covering the first season, which is called Book One, Water. That one really will contain spoilers, but only up to the end of that season. The week after we'll be covering Book Two, Earth, in exactly the same way. And then the week after that, Book Three, Fire. The fifth and final episode airing the following week will be The Legend of Korra, which is the first season of the follow-up story to The Legend of Aang. To briefly summarise the plot... Actually, I'm going to let Katara do that. She gets it right every show. Water. Earth. Fire. Air. Long ago, the four nations lived together in harmony. Then, everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. A hundred years passed and my brother and I discovered the new Avatar, an airbender named Aang. And although his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. But I believe Aang can save the world. Avatar was originally positioned as appealing to 6 to 11 year old boys and hopefully some girls. This is reflected in its gentle and somewhat goofy first few episodes. However, the themes became more mature as time went on and focus fell on character growth, evolving into something appealing to a far broader and indeed older audience. Eventually, Legend of Korra emerged this year and has been roundly praised as one of the best shows not only animated but on TV in general this year. This kiddie hump, as it were, is the biggest one you will have to get over, and it will be roughly 13 episodes. But we tell you now that you must persevere, and you will reap the rewards. It becomes steadily more compulsive, and most of us consumed the final season in just a few joyful, nail-biting marathon sessions. Is that largely agreed across the group? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, pretty much half of season three in one day, which uh, <laughs> I'm not proud to admit, but <laughs> I got a bit um, attached. We just need to put these the hours that you're going to spend on this in perspective. It's not like 20 hours of, oh, for goodness sake, when's this thing going to start? It's like the first few hours of, oh, okay, okay. And then before you know it, you'll be like, right, next one, please. Mm, next one, please. Next one. So it's, it's not hard going at all in the slightest once you get through that first even at the beginning in all fairness it's still fun it's yeah. just not as compelling at the very beginning as it is later on it's just the kind of fun where kids skate on penguins you'll have a first impression of seeing it and thinking oh this is a pretty good kids show I'm impressed but I don't know if I could sit and watch this I don't know if I could like watch this beginning to end If just push through that feeling because into season 2 you will be very dedicated to watching this beginning to end one of the ways we're going to start off is by reviewing the 2010 film directed by M. Night Shyamalan. This is actually only going to be part of this overall show, because as much as we'd like to spit bile at this wretched Hollywood distortion of our beloved Avatar, it really doesn't deserve either our time or yours. These podcasts are better served as inspirational pieces rather than expressions of mass disgust. Instead, I'm going to try to turn every flaw in this deeply mismanaged, and to coin the most appropriate phrase, multi-buggered cinematic offence into a commendation for the animated show. So we'll start with some character studies. I will call out a character, and you guys give me one-word descriptions of their personality, or a couple of words if you absolutely must, but not long diatribes. You need to look at their personality and purpose on the animated series. Okay. Ready? We will start off with soccer. 
with the boomerang. I didn't ask for all this flying and magic. Comic relief. The everyman. Very grounded. Yeah, the audience's eyes I would describe him as as well because he's very much... Because he's not a bender. Yeah. Um, he's seeing the world the same way we're seeing the world, so he's asking the questions we'd ask. So, what the hell is that? And and you know, and it, we can relate to him because of that. Um, mm. But he's also. I don't think it's fair to just squarely put him in the comic relief camp. No, he is very capable. Yes, he is. He does eventually become quite a a respected warrior. Um, and he cares about the group. He's, a, you know, a really valuable member of the mm. team. He, he's a good planner. Um, well, when it counts, sometimes he's an idiot. But um, <laughs> when, when it really matters, he's reliable. To predict the fate of the whole village. That cloud kind of looks like a fluffy bunny. You better hope that's not a bunny. A fluffy bunny cloud forecasts doom and destruction. Do you even hear yourself? For the vast majority of uninitiated folks. Socket is one of two teenagers who finds this bald kid, Aang, in the ice, where they live. They're Inuit-style people, and they live down in the South Pole. He's the older brother of Katara, and he is the cynic of the group. Which is a really good way of uh, making sure that it doesn't become too mystical and disappear up its own butt. Skeptic, I'd say, rather than cynic. Yes. He is kind of cynical. Bit. Yeah, there, there's a line where, um... Maybe whatever I have to do will just come to me. I think you can do it, Aang. Yeah. We're all gonna get eaten by a spirit monster. Okay, so, again, to flesh out this character a bit, he's, uh... The only guy left in this tribe of, you know, older than about seven or eight. Um, and he is kind of been given the mantle of hunter and uh, trainer of all the warriors. His and Katara's mother was killed a few years ago in a Fire Nation raid and so he's kind of had to shoulder a lot of responsibility but similarly Katara has had to become kind of the mother of that particular dynamic. He is very reliant on his beloved boomerang and there's a lot of mileage gotten from this particular accessory throughout the series. We're going to have to work pretty hard to cut through that. What's this wee stuff? Aang and I are going to have to do all the work. Look, I'm the plan guy. You two are the cut stuff up with waterbending guys. Together, we're Team Avatar. He's one of the funniest characters I've seen in a TV show. I, I would actually compare him, if we're going to compare it to other TV shows, um, the closest comparison would be something like Wash from Firefly. Yeah, it's, Xander from Buffy. He's very much that comic relief character, but there is more to him than that. You yeah. do care about him, and when stuff goes bad, you feel for the guy. Yeah. Um, but you you love him as well because he picks you up when you're down as well because he is funny. I was so mean to her. Yeah, you two were pretty much jerks. Thanks, Saga. No problem. He's not a straight-out hand solo type in that he's he's not just you know disparaging of the notion of all of the spirituality that Aang's toting, but it's it's as far as he's concerned, it's not really for him. He definitely fills the Han Solo role in the group. It feels like he's kind of caught up in it, because he's not uh, the most capable member of the team. Um, uh, later on, there are characters like um, Toph and so forth who are really badasses. What makes him great is that he he's there when you need him to be. He's super reliable. He's not a coward. He's brave. He's... Um, and he's braver than he is capable. 
He's yeah, very he's, practical, though, I think, possibly because he hasn't got bending to rely on like the others do. He thinks do. of the ideas that the others just never think of because yeah. they rely so much on their bending. In a similar way to Darcy and Thor, as, as Josh said, she, she says what the audience is thinking in a funny and well-timed way. He functions very well as the funny character, but also as the straight man stick-in-the-mud character for funny things to happen, too. Yeah, He's kind yeah, of he's, he's got enough dignity for when terrible things happen to him. It's funny. It's only funny if the sap's got dignity. True, and he has that. Now come back, Boomerang. Okay, so, right, to now bring this particular character study full circle, how much of that is present in the soccer character as portrayed in M. Night Shyamalan's 2010 film, The Last Airbender? Zero percent. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, Instead of um, taking inspiration from the TV show, I think the actor in this film took inspiration from a tree. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's it's just so wood... He's not funny at all. He's just Mr. Exposition. It's just like, okay, we're going to go do these things. Is that okay, Ang? Yes. Bear in mind, okay. he doesn't have any funny lines to deliver, even if he is a funny person. Oh, uh, yeah. He's also not directed to be funny. So he- there was no intention in this, in the making of this film to make soccer a source of amusement or any of the other things we just discussed. He does actually say at one point in the film, OK, Ang, so we're going to go from the South Pole to the North Pole to find you a waterbending trainer, and on the way, let's stop off at some Earth Kingdom villages and see if we can instigate some kind of revolution against the Fire Nation. He almost uses those exact words and then follows a montage of them doing exactly that. He is one of the many purveyors of long expositionary tracts. Soka, don't. Katara, do not hit that spear! Really powerful vendors in the, in the Northern Water Tribe. My dad told me about it before he left. It's led by a princess because her father died. You're not taking him anywhere. No one is taking anybody away. So, are you the Avatar Ong? Right, um, moving on. Katara. Maternal. Angry. Uh, Dead mother. Traumatized. Defensive. Dreamer. Kind of an anchor. Naive. She can be. She can be. Optimistic despite a history of having stuff going bad. Do you think we'll really find airbenders? You want me to be like you or totally honest? Are you saying I'm a liar? I'm saying you're an optimist. Same thing, basically. Responsible. Very something, mature. Something of a teacher. Certainly had her age. She's, stubborn. She's 14, yeah. Stubborn, definitely. Yeah, she's, um, she also forms the heart of the group. She is what keeps the boys going, whereas they would not probably have lost their way very early otherwise. Almost immediately becomes something of an object of an uh, of a, um, apparently unrequited romantic affection for young Ang. Um, and how much of that was present in Katara in the 2010 film by M. Night Shyamalan, The Last Airbender. I didn't see Katara in that movie. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. Anywhere. She's responsible, yep. There was somebody with the same name. (laughs) I'm crying because it filled me with hope. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't think she did the most horrendous job. Uh, There are... And I know that Josh is probably Possibly she did the best job. ...kill me because of some of the things I'm going to say about this, but there are... One or two, and I can count them on the fingers of one hand, one or two things that they did okay. And 
in a very, very superficial, one-dimensional way, she didn't do Katara terribly badly. I wasn't left angered by her specifically. I'll give you that. It should say something that that's the nicest thing we can find to say, though. It didn't. Yeah. You did not, ma- you did not make me angry kill. as other things. <laughs> My name is Katara, and I'm the only waterbender left in the Southern Water Tribe. What's your name? How did you get here? How did you get in the ice? How'd you get all the way out here? You're not so upset? This is where you live? Is it okay if you tell me your name? Weren't they extinct a long time ago? Your friends were monks? He can bend earth? Leave him alone. My brother and the princess became friends right away. The scroll we had was proving to be helpful. Ong was practicing, but for some reason, he was having trouble with waterbending. For some reason... Ang, also known as Ong, in the 2010 M. Night Shyamalan film, The Last Airbender. I think we should call him McKnight. If he can't get somebody else's name right, we shouldn't get his right. McKnight Shyamalan? <laughs> No, because uh, we do our research, Jerome. <laughs> we must rise above it. Very well. Okay, yeah, Ang. To rhyme with the third syllable in boomerang. Fun-loving. Free spirit. I'm going to say ha- naive again. Pacifist. Evasive. Friendly. Secretive. Scared. Sometimes. Childish. Adorable. <laughs> yep. He is, really, because well, all we're saying here actually makes him sound quite annoying. He is one of the most adorable central protagonists in an animated show I've seen for a very long time. Uh, interestingly enough, have you guys all seen the pilot that I um, uh, put up for you? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Right. The, f- the first kid who did the uh, voice for Aang was, you know, on, on the annoying shade. So, Zach Tyler Eisen, yeah, who plays him, is, is genuinely lovable. ask you something what please come closer what is it will you go penguin sledding with me there's bonzu the pentalopsicopolis the third my business is my business young man and none of yours i got up and i some things over my knee and tell you your backside he actually has kind of a, a kiddie look about him. Of all of the uh, characters in this, he's, he actually he has baby features. And you, as an adult, don't immediately trust him as the uh, central protagonist in terms of the fact that you're like, oh, come on, like you've got troubles. But as it turns out, he's actually very secretive about those troubles and, and hides a, a great weight. Not that you'd know. Hi, we be casting off now. What could you possibly do for a country of depraved little fire monsters? I'm going to throw them a secret dance party. I, I think what's really great about Aang as well is that he fills in that kind of uh, Boy Scout role that uh, someone like Superman would, mm. but while at the same time being much more complex than a Superman character mm. uh, normally is. Um, Cause, yeah, because it makes more sense. Because he's a child and he grew up where he did, it makes sense that he's this Boy Scout, always has faith in faith in people wants to find the best way to help everybody what's also great is that boy scout nature of him almost is a flaw sometimes because he's not willing to take the appropriate action in certain situations Mm. because he doesn't want to hurt people and he doesn't want to harm anyone yeah he will always choose to evade rather than attack i think he does um you do get that impression that it's targeted at a younger audience 
because he doesn't have the usual hero's journey of, of battling with being you know, too angry at everything all the time and, and lashing out and, and not being able to get that anger under control. He almost has the opposite problem. The anger is there, but he won't allow it to inform on anything he does, which means he can't use it. Yeah. Well, I think he doesn't want to burden people with his emotional baggage. He creates this persona of, I'm fun-loving and uh, I just want to make everyone smile to hide that, you know, those scars that are just under the surface. Which is a very, very um, childlike response to great mm. trauma, to, to try and smooth everything over and, and be the one that makes everybody smile when everybody's angry um, and when everybody's unhappy. But in, in terms of him sort of not... I think you, you're spot on there about him not wanting to burden people because ultimately the thing that is his biggest trauma... Um, he is literally the the only person in the world who can feel that because yeah. he's because of what's happened to his um, his people okay so how much of that was present in the character of ung in m night shyamalan's 2010 masterpiece the last airbender zip zilch zero non nothing at all whatsoever naive that's about it <laughs> I don't think he does come across that way in the film, though. Not really. He, in in a w lot of ways, he's too knowing about certain things. Mm. Yeah, okay, so yeah, scratch naive. The common elements with all of these transitions from show to character is that basically the fun and spirit of the show is completely bled out, which leaves a lot of these characters with nothing left. Like Sokka, it's, with Sokka it's especially noticeable because he is the fun character, and so with fun sapped out, he is literally nothing on screen. Mm -hmm. Aang, that fun-loving side of him is a big part of his character. With that gone, he's got very, very little left. Yeah, that's basically the common elements you'll find with all of the character transitions. Yeah, now that you mention it, if, if you were going to put them down to a straightforward comedy duo, Aang is the wacky one, and uh, Sokka is the straight man, but frequently a lot funnier than the wacky one, and so key to the general humour of the show. Shaman has been uh, quoted as saying that he took a lot of the more slapsticky elements out of the show, which is interesting because I think he cut a little bit too close to the bone with this one. He actually took all of the humor out of the show, and it's so integral to the show. You will, they expect you to be laughing along with it so often that if you take it out completely and you make the film exceptionally po-faced, which he did, then it's, in essence, something entirely different. You're turning a comedy into a drama, which, you know, in the right hands, can work. It just wasn't the right hands at this point. This is, this is a man who has spent his film career directing 90-minute uh, supernatural thrillers with a twist at the end, which doesn't, by anyone's reckoning, sound like the person to direct this film. If, if you'd told me before he directed it, if I hadn't seen Lady in the Water, if I hadn't seen The Happening, if I hadn't seen... So he's, he's actually been going steadily downhill since The Sixth Sense, which I will say right now is a masterpiece of cinema. One of the greatest ghost stories in cinematic history, indisputably. It's just that everything else he's done since then has been lukewarm, and in more recent years he's been doing terrible films. Uh, it's, it's just baffling that he got chosen to do this at all. I, I don't think it was necessarily doomed to be... Uh, to be a failure. I mean, uh, there were a lot of people questioning the wisdom of giving Lord of the Rings to Peter Jackson. Yeah. As it happened, he had a team around him who helped him create 
some of the finest films known to man. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, it would appear Shyamalan didn't. There's actually quite a lot of comparisons that are favourable with uh, Lord of the Rings, specific, the wetter Lord of the Rings, with the animated version of Avatar. And I don't say that lightly. You guys know how much I adore those Lord of the Rings films. But the amount of time and effort and camaraderie and the, the, the sense of a huge family pulling together to make something that's bigger than all of them is present in, in both of those productions and should have been present in the films. My name is Ong. And I'm the Avatar. Earthbenders! Firebenders! He was bending tiny stones at us from behind a tree. It really hurt. To get your airbending tattoos, you have to meditate for long periods of time without losing focus. Some of the great monks can meditate for four days. Which element would you have to learn first? Water. Water comes after air in the cycle. Air, water, earth, fire. We were forced under the water of the ocean. Oh. It's time we show the Fire Nation that we believe in our beliefs as much as they believe in theirs. We'll carry on with the character study, shall we? Zuko. Rage. Scarred. Resentment. Secrecy. Confusion. Conflicted. Ashamed. Lack of ability to face facts. Desperation. Purposefully blinkered. I'd say a bit of loneliness in there as well. Very much, yeah. Stubborn. Self-deprecating. Self-loathing to a degree. Honor-obsessed. Sad. There's a certain degree of arrogance about him as well. True. But it's, it's kind of underlined by the fact that he has no faith in himself. Which mm. seems like a, a weird combination to have, but I think he has it. Uncle, do you realize what this means? Please sit. Why don't you enjoy a cup of calming jasmine tea? I don't need any calming tea! Right, now this one's going to be tough because Dev Patel is an extremely good actor. We've seen him act his socks off in Slumdog Millionaire. Uh, how much of this was present in the character of Zuko in the 2010 M. Night Shyamalan film, The Last Airbender? I'm oh. going to say that out of all the actors in this film, he was the best. Um, I know that's damning with faint praise but um, he did convey the anger, he did convey the sadness, not to the complexity that the character in the show has yeah, but it, it was, was there, it was present um, it was over I, the top Yeah, and he seemed like the only person who was trying, trying to yeah. get something out of that script I mean, mm. the script is awful and even written by Shyamalan as well, we must I'll go with that. The dialogue is absolutely appalling. Yeah. It's so shallow. Even the best actors can't make a bad script brilliant. Um, I, I mean, a great script makes you act automatically. You only have to um, see stuff, uh, some of Joss Whedon's stuff. Like It's just so organic, the dialogue flows. This is so stilted that even though Dev Patel is putting a lot of effort into it, it's still kind of wooden and stiff. Mm. I'd actually agree with you. I think he was the one good casting choice in this entire film. And if he were actually, if this were a better film and he were still in it, I think he might have, I think we might be talking about him as one of the better, still as one of the best things about the movie. Mm. I just don't, I just think he was put in an environment where he had literally nothing to work with. And I think he may seem like he kind of overacts in some cases because he's the only character on screen seeming to feel anything. 
For the uninitiated, Zuko is the disgraced prince who has been sent out by the big bad, the Fire Lord, to find the Avatar, which initially is a ridiculous wild goose chase because this guy's been missing for a hundred years and is presumed dead, so he's effectively sending his own son out uh, to, to wander the world forever. And Zuko has this obsession with regaining his honour to find the Avatar and make his father happy. There is one scene in this film, which is an analogue of a scene in the animated show, where Iroh is talking to a small child about Zuko and what happened to actually get him out there. And they got the whole thing completely ass backwards. In the show, Iroh talks about Zuko to the men that he is leading and is often very abrasive with and he tries to explain to the men why he is so abrasive and also to, to us as an audience why should we care about this guy it dates back to the fact that his father after Zuko queried the notion of sending brand new young troops in as bait to get slaughtered being right as well and being right, you know, absolutely ethically on the money, uh, was told that he was uh, questioning his own father's orders there and was forced to duel his own father. He decided he was not going to fight his father and his father saw that as an act of cowardice and scarred his own son in the eye with a ball of fire in a horrific act that uh, any parent or child would be heartbroken by. In the animated show, that is one of the first times we start to feel something for Zuko. I, it's worth spoiling that particular aspect of him right now, because Zuko is a tough character to like to begin with. In the film, a little kid recounts this tale to Iroh, who's just sort of sitting there going, mm, mm, and Zuko's just sort of, mm, yeah, mm, that's right, okay, everyone got that? Now we'll move on. And there's a few flashes of a child who's way too young having this done to him. It should have been the other way around. Small child should have asked Uncle Iroh, how did that boy get that scar? And Uncle Iroh should have told the small child the story, and we should have seen the chilling effect that that would have on a small child, and felt that on both that and the sadness of Uncle Iroh recounting that. That would be even better than just telling the men. And I'm not going to say I could direct a film better than M. Night Shyamalan, but I could direct a film far better than M. Night Shyamalan. Anyway. There you go. <laughs> you played a tortured soul in this film. You're like the tortured, banished yeah. prince of the Fire Nation. Now, um, was that also yeah. part of the attraction? Playing villain, a different side of your character instead of the hapless yeah. hero? Yeah, yeah, it really was. Uh... Uh, I really wanted to, um, he's got a dark side to him and he's really, um, there's a lot of inner turmoil going on, you know, lots of internalization and uh, uh, I really wanted to just uh, try and put that through and more than anything, you know, in the cartoonies, you know, obviously um, there are a lot more, you know, in the first season things are a lot more one-dimensional with this character and he's just angry all the time and intimidating and, you know, it's a hard balance between trying to, you know, be truthful to the real content but also make it real and Within that, I just found out that the character is just a young boy that just wants to be loved by his father. Right. And is a bit more vulnerable. I, instead of just being badass and scary, and there was a bit of vulnerability I tried to squeeze in wherever I could. On to Uncle Iroh, who I've just talked about. This is the amiable old chap who has, been, who has put it upon himself to accompany Prince Zuko, his nephew, in his quest for the Avatar. It's also a semi-retirement for him. He's not been banished, but he has decided to go with his nephew. Words that would describe Iroh. Wise. Placid. Worldly. Balanced. Humorous. Spiritual. Humble. Friendly. Lovable. 
caring. Hungry. Thirsty. Tea loving. <laughs> like you would not believe you'll end up buying Jasmine tea because this guy won't shut up about it. I did. It's good. <laughs> Bargain hunter. Bargain hunter. Music yep. lover. Just loves life in general. He has an astonishing ability to both have exceptional dignity whilst being entirely undignified. It is such a tightrope to walk, but he manages it. Powerful. Powerful, yeah. He was voiced by the wonderful actor named Marco, who folks may remember from Conan the Barbarian. Between the time when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of. And on to this, Conan, destined to bear the jeweled crown of Aquilonia upon a troubled brow. It is I, his chronicler, who alone can tell thee of his saga. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. If you're a bit too young for it, you probably won't, but you might remember him as Aku from Samurai Jack. Long ago in a distant land, I, Aku, the shape-shifting master of darkness, unleashed an unspeakable evil. But a foolish samurai warrior wielding a magic sword stepped forth to oppose me. Before the final blow was struck, I tore open a portal in time and flung him into the future, where my evil is law. Now the fool seeks to return to the past and undo the future that is Aku. He has got the most incredible voice, to the point where just watching him for a few seconds as Splinter in the TMNT movie, suddenly he steals the entire show, and just the expression on this rat's face with Marco's voice coming out of him, I felt this incredible sadness for the character as he was worrying about his four sons and the possibility that they would never be able to reconcile their differences. And that comes across a lot in Iroh. Yeah. But at the same time, he also makes you laugh your socks off. He's the ideal of what the Fire Nation could be. Yes. He is balanced and powerful, but has the ability to understand what terrible things can happen if he uses his firebending. And he respects other nations. Yeah. He respects and uh, embraces other nations. And all he really wants to do is retire and get himself a tea shop. So we'll talk about Iroh some more in the later episodes. But yeah, that's, that, that's him in a nutshell. And uh, he's maybe my favorite character, with Sokka being up there as well. And Zuko. The sages tell us that the Avatar is the last airbender. He must be over a hundred years old by now. He's had a century to master the four elements. I'll need more than basic firebending to defeat him. You will teach me the advanced set! Very well. But first, I must finish my roast duck. Um, um. How many of those characteristics were present in the Uncle Eero who featured in 2010's M. Night Shyamalan film The Last Airbender he was pleasant um, he, they was were, he was there he was relatively to Zuko. 
he had the dignity and the kind of like caring for his nephew there, but again, with the fun sapped out, that's just half of the character. So he's if just kind of left there to, if that, so he's just left there to stand kind of dignified and caring, and mm. that's and about all he's got. And we're comparing this guy to Mako's performance, and I have to Marco. say, later on in the series, Mako delivers some Marco. of the best. Mako. <laughs> Uh, One of the characters in Legend of Korra is called Marco in reverence to Marco, who, by the way, sadly passed away in the middle of filming this animated show. And it's one of the most heartbreaking moments when you realize that the character had actually died while they were producing it. And and there's a dedication at the end of one of the episodes. And the room will get a little dusty, let me tell you, folks. He delivers one of the best uh, vocal performances I've seen on a TV show. Uh, back to the film, back to the film, we won the film. No, uh, that's what I mean, but I, I'm comparing this performance to that, mm. and it just comes up so short. Um, Flat. Completely. Uh, it, I mean, enough respect to Sean Torb, who was actually really pretty compelling. He was um, Jensen in Iron Man, the man who uh, helped Tony make his first suit of armor, and then died as a result of it. You know, he, he was actually he was pretty compelling in that. Choice. Yeah. And so uh, I, I, I don't dispute that he could feasibly have pulled off an Uncle Iroh if he had... Iroh, it's pronounced Iroh to rhyme with Pyro. I, I believe he could have feasibly have pulled it off, but he would have had to have been given a good script and told, this guy's funny. I don't think he plays... Uh, do I call him Eero? Just to I, distinguish. call him Eero to distinction. Yeah. I don't think he plays Eero all that different to Jensen, to be honest. Mm. He's, he's got very similar expressions. The way that he relates to the, the person who's in his charge is quite similar. The, one of the things that really wound me up about him, actually, is that if you, you look at the way that Iroh interacts with Zuko and specifically Zuko's quest in the TV show, he's, he keeps himself distanced from it. He doesn't get involved. He's there for Zuko, mm. but he does not allow himself to be drawn into the Avatar hunt. But Iroh... He's right there with him. Yeah, he actually tests the Avatar in a gentle kind of way, but he's like, right, you, here's the Avatar test, which they made up. Um, this is how we know well, you're the Avatar. The wrong place. <laughs> and then he says, you know, oh, well, we're going to have to keep you here now, sorry. Which I can't <laughs> see Iroh doing that at all. I will <laughs> say one thing. Iroh is the only person who can properly firebend. Yeah. Cr- yes! That's so annoying in the movie. Yes. In the the movie, firebenders cannot create their own fire. In the animated show, firebenders can create their own fire. That's what makes them so scary. Yeah. (laughs) Waterbenders need to find a water source. Earthbenders, of course, need to be around Earth. Airbenders, of course, unless they're in a vacuum, which is unlikely, have always got air at their disposal. That's why they were got rid of first, because airbenders pose quite a threat to firebenders. Hmm. Despite the fact that they're not aggressive. Also, it it makes sense that those other forms of bendings uh, have those limitations because there's Mm. basically water everywhere. (laughs) There's earth everywhere. There's Mm. air everywhere. Fire is not as common (laughs) as those other three. So uh, it requires something to make. Yeah. So actually, firebenders in this movie are rubbish because exactly. all you have to do is put out all the fires and then you can just water bend them to death I don't understand why the water true, benders in this film had any issues fighting these guys because they're surrounded by snow and water <laughs> and all the firebenders have got are a couple of lamps it's ridiculous what happens when it rains 
Why are you doing this? Who are you? Are you an airbender boy? Who are you? What's your name? You're too soft, General Hero. Just wait till everyone's fighting everyone. Everyone! Oh, I see. As many fires in this city should be put out as possible when the alarm sounds. We want to minimize their bender sources. Bring me all your elderly! There's Earth right beneath your feet! I am pleased. You're lying! Okay, there's two other major characters who feature in the movie, one of whom probably shouldn't have at all, uh, who I'm at least just going to ask you to cover because one of them does feature pretty heavily in the first season. Admiral Zhao. Uh, Arrogant. Undisciplined. Sadistic. Entitled. Jason Isaacs. Hello to Jason Isaacs. We are the sons and daughters of fire, the superior element. It's not immediately apparent. He's speaking in an American accent, and I I had to be told, but it is so Jason Isaacs once you realize how... You know, it's it's, it's Isaacs performing the voice, and only in the character. And do you know who he is in the film? Not Jason Isaacs. Not at all. The pizza guy from (laughs) Spider-Man 2. Yeah. Yeah. The guy who annoyed and then fired Paul Peter Parker. Not exactly a figurehead of fear. <laughs> I you love him on The Daily Show, but, but like that was, that's the most baffling casting choice of the... And there are many baffling casting choices in this film, but that is the most by far. I don't know. The next one's pretty baffling, too. Um, <laughs> driven and somewhat maniacal and cruel and a bully and everything that it really takes to be a two-dimensional bad guy. And everything that's kind of wrong with the Fire Nation at this point in time. Yeah. But um, how is he in the film? He is... Directed by M. Night Shyamalan in 2010's Last Element. idiot. He gets... Slimy. Bossed around by his boss, which is reasonable... But he he never gives any like a boss. He never gives much of an indication that he's capable of controlling anything. Yeah, you he just seems like yeah. He seems like an irritation rather than a nemesis. Yeah, he seems like that guy at your workplace who got promoted a couple places too high and is just like really like <laughs> completely incapable and bumbling, but thinks he's powerful. Michael Gareth Scott, Keenan. <laughs> <laughs> we went there. In the movie, it's possible Zhao actually has to deliver the worst, most clumsy expositionary dialogue of all. Most of his lines appear to be about scrolls. And folks, beware any movie with sentences that start with, as you know, because if the person who the line is being delivered to already knows, why is it even being said? As you know, I conducted a raid on the Great Library. I have found scrolls in the library. What have you learned from the stolen scrolls? In my raid of the Great Library earlier this year... Found a scroll. I found a scroll. Yep, thought so. This is a scroll from the Great Library. Everybody got that? As you know, the Fire Lord has banished his son, the Prince, and renounced his love of him. Your failure in the Hundred Day Siege of Ba Sing Se won't be held against you. Your son died in that siege, didn't he? Again, I offer my condolences on your nephew burning to death in that terrible accident. As you know, I conducted a raid on the Great Library, which most said didn't even exist. Get on with it. Yes! Get on with it! Okay, yeah, so he's there to give Zuko someone to be up against so that you maybe don't feel too bad about Zuko. 
Yeah, he serves his, his, his function very well in the animated show, not so well in the film. Final, final major character. Actually, <laughs> I'm going to say this one because uh, it's kind of important. Upper. Oh. Upper is Ang's flying bison. He is a big, somewhere across between a manatee and cat bus from My Neighbor Totoro. A big, shaggy, flying Kenton. buffalo. So, um, one single word to describe Appa. Lovable. Reliable. Chewbacca. <laughs> Tough. Yeah. Resilient. Cheering. Vulnerable at times. He doesn't speak. He's just a, a, a flying bison. But he is a tangible character that you care about to the point where, and this is not really spoiling much, at some point in Series 2 he gets taken away and you really feel his loss. Everybody does. He's um, Ang's only real link with his, um, yeah. his past. That's true. The, this bison was with Ang in the iceberg when they found him, and he has known him since he was a, a tiny child. Okay, so uh, how much of that was present in the APA in the 2010 movie, directed by M. Night Shyamalan, The Last Airbender? He was APA was in it? <laughs> that I, I noticed a flying carpet. Yeah, he wasn't so much a cat bus as just a bus. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I was going to say they might as well have just replaced him with like a flying broomstick or an airplane or something like that. I was going to say flying carpet there, but the flying carpet in Aladdin had more personality than this. Yeah, that's very true. Oh, good man! It's also an uncanny nightmare-looking creature. Like, yeah, for a for a film that came out less than two years ago. There's no excuse for that kind of like really creepy uh, sort of feeling oh, Alex, you get when Alex it looks at you in the excuse. eye. Alex found what? the excuse. The person who was hold that back. Oh, show. we're coming to that. I'm are we? coming to that. <laughs> okay. This is the grand finale. I'll hold off. Sorry. Okay. Um, but yeah, no, there, there's there's reasons why Appa is the way he is. But in the film, he is mostly absent. He gets about four seconds of FaceTime. When I, by that, I mean you can see his eyes for four seconds. Most of the rest of him on screen is just like from the rear or from the side, but not really his eyes. Um, and it's actually, it's very important that you see Appa's face. It's very important because oh. he is helping Ang. It's his steed. This is his, his ride. He is the Millennium Falcon. He is Serenity. He is the ship, the thing that carries Team Ang. But at the same time, he is alive and he is a being. This is a creature that you adore by the middle end of this series. And in this, Furry Bus. <coughs> With a face, apparently... Oh, it's Co at work, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Been stealing faces. <laughs> and finally... Actually, no, let's do Momo, shall we? A few well, brief words to describe Momo. Inquisitive. This is a small lima monkey bat thing that sort of seems at first like Jar Jar Binks, but, you know, turns out to be, carry on, single words. Hilarious. Murky. Very cute. Lovable as well. All the best qualities of a monkey. Dedicated. Cute little eyes. (laughs) Eyes are cute. It's more than just cute. Yeah. It's more than just cute. Charismatic to a certain extent. It transpires throughout the series that in his own Lima Bat little monkeyish way, he has started to care about the characters that he ends up dropping into the laps of. And although he never speaks again, um, and is, is kind of there for 
I would say comic relief in a comedy. He's not really there to serve the narrative that much. The way they treat him and interact with him informs upon their characters. It's kind of important to that end. Describe Momo in this movie. Present. Barely. <laughs> 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 he was present. I was absent. There were just bits of the film where they have him fly in and all reacts to him is just completely tacked on. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they don't even just mention him as Momo in the movie. Yeah, no, he's never named. They were referred to. It's kind of a token, oh, look, everyone likes this thing. We don't know what for, but there you go. There's Momo. There is a bit in the film where he hangs, the camera's facing his back, the camera's facing his back, and Momo flies in and lands on his shoulder, and it doesn't even notice it whatsoever. It's just been tacked on there for the fun of it. Like maybe he wasn't even in the film, apart from that one bit where they say, it's a lever bat. <laughs> yeah. And they just sort of like, look, we can probably afford with an extra $3,000 to put him in these three shots. <laughs> so, yeah. Afterthought is probably a good word. I was going to say, maybe they didn't know until they got towards the end whether or not they'd be able to afford him. <laughs> so they just kind of slotted him in occasionally. I'm trying to work out, there's a fine line again that they're treading between being able to afford and being bothered. So, yeah, that, I think they, they figured... 150 million story. went somewhere. Well, if you're bothered, you find a way to afford. Okay, final character for this film and for this first season. Fire Lord Ozai. <coughs> This is the big bad, the emperor, the the, uh, the phoenix king, the one who presides over the Fire Nation, and the is he the grandson of the Fire Lord who first started this war around the same time that Aang disappeared? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, single words. Voiced by Mark Hamill, I might add. See, this is a difficult one. Mysterious, menacing, at this point, anyway. Yes. Intimidating. Terrible parent. Yes. Distant. Psychotic. Self-obsessed. Paranoid. Childish, kind of. Yeah. Power-hungry. It's appropriate, actually, that he's uh, voiced by the Joker. He actually has. He shares many similarities with the, the character, all the bad ones. And in the 2010 M. Night Shyamalan film, The Last Airbender, he is played by Cliff Curtis, who was in Sunshine, a film I love, and he was very good in Sunshine. I believe he turned up in Die Hard 4. Yep. And, uh, yeah, he plays Look, Fire Lord Ozai. Now, one of the main things that anyone could tell you about Fire Lord Ozai, for the first uh, two series, you only ever see him from behind or in silhouette. Or you he see is his chin. Mysterious. You might see his chin. Mostly it's just the back of his head and his top knot he's and his, his frame, but not his face. He's supposed to be a domineering figure. Yeah. He's like Dr. Claw. I was right. just thinking that. <laughs> yeah. That's right, Mad Cat. Uh, and how does Cliff Curtis play him? Uh, not well. Uh, not scary. That's overly sure. entitled rich guy. Lukewarm. Pompous. Like he kind of has a meeting to get to, and anything yeah. that he's <laughs> having to talk about now is kind of a bother. A bother right now. Executivey. Yeah, that's that. a word. <laughs> he's a bit like Donald Trump. It's quite a beige personality. Yes. He can uh, be a bit manipulative occasionally, like he, he plays Zhao's need to get to find the Avatar off against Zuko's need to find the Avatar to sort of, you know, They did focus on, regarding Zhao, he is ultimately a um, someone who's out to climb up the ranks and to worm his way into uh, into power. They did They did get that aspect right about him, 
but they lost all of the threatening aspects of him as well. They needed a villain to really give uh, give a genuine sense of threat. However, interesting enough, by showing him, you take that sense of threat away. I was going to say, they've removed a massive amount of, of menace from all of the people who are supposed to be the bad guys. Here's what I'm rounding up to. In one of the deleted, one of the three deleted scenes, Fire Lord Ozai gives a guy a messenger who tells him that they screwed up at the very end and the Avatar got away. A, a burning, well, no, he sets the field that he's standing in on fire and says, "When this reaches three fields, I want you to try to put it out." And then walks off smirking to himself because he's just allowed this messenger to die. And it's like, oh my God, he's so evil. He kills his own men. Yeah. You think, my son. Is this person yes okay I'm gonna try not to be angry I'm gonna try not to swear because there are hopefully children present uh, but there has been no progress since Star Wars with this thing Star Wars actually plays in very heavily this film is the fourth in George Lucas's prequel trilogy. It is exactly the same in terms of sucking everything that was magical and interesting and fun out of the original trilogy and giving us a giant green screen, wooden, dull, lifeless, soulless. Well done, Katara. Thank you, Master Paku. What were you feeling? Thoughts about my family ran through me. Were they all good thoughts? Some were sad. Just like Lucas, Shyamalan makes the mistake of trying to explain emotions and simple fantasy premises in a painfully dull, patronizing and lifeless way. Nobody ever expresses anything in less than the amount of words it takes to adequately explain these concepts as though to a particularly stupid child. He seems to believe these are difficult to grasp or not digestible unless reduced to rudimentary sticks and blocks, delivered in a fashion that ignores the past few decades of progress. His ridiculously low expectations of his audience proved insulting to all but 6% of critics who passed this off as an OK kids film, and they also happen to be perpetuating the same erroneous myth that children as a whole are dumb, or that artless vacuous fare that you wouldn't watch yourself is acceptable to leave the next generation sat in front of. What's a good word for everyone running round and round and round and making a big lot of noise but really not amounting to much? Caucus? How a good way of putting it? Yeah. Caucus race from Lewis Carroll's uh, Alice Houses of Ventures in Wonderland. Yeah. Everyone in this film is a headless chicken charging about the place doing uh, bending out, out the yin-yang literally uh, but, but nothing actually happens and it, specifically it doesn't happen to anyone. The, the thing that's really compelling about Avatar is not the goings-on although those are actually quite you know epic and, and huge. It's who it goes on to and who it goes on with. We are with Team Avatar every step of the way, and we even start to really feel, even by the middle end of uh, Season 1, for Zuko somewhat. And they didn't do that in the film at all. I would rank this film lower than the Star Wars prequels, actually. Yeah, yes. no, absolutely. Yeah. Because there's at least a certain... Like, like, the Star Wars prequels are bad and dumb, but there's, like, there's a certain, at least, level of slight professionalism and a professional ability kind of holding it together where it's just kind of boring and really disappointing. This is just 
I think this is the most amateur blockbuster film I've ever seen. It is a mess. I know, of course, like yeah, a terrible of course it's, it's, it's worse than the prequels. I'm just very angry at, at how the prequels were constructed with the ethos of, of let's just stick it on green screen and put it together piecemeal. Just characters don't even interact. They just they exchange exposition at each other. Hmm. And, and like that point you mentioned with like the kid in the in that little restaurant that uh that Eero and Zuko were in. It's, that's even like why I call over the kid. It's like a kid, come here. I need someone else to deliver this exposition for me. <laughs> Look, I don't want to know about. Look, you're gonna stand here. I got some I'm, stuff to lay on you. <laughs> I, I'm also kind of amazed that this film manages to rush through all the major plot points of season one and yet still feel like it's dragging its heels across the floor. Yeah. All the way to the end. How could something feel rushed and slow at the same time? It's like someone fired a tortoise at us. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's efficient in all the wrong ways. He basically he uses like voice over like voice narration over mm. footage when and he doesn't montage. need to. When, yeah, in montage where he doesn't need to. He uses exposition where he could actually show things. Like the from the very beginning, the opening title crawl of text has someone reading it to you at the same time. You could, he could literally be showing you anything at that time. I mean, do it, do it even the same way the show does it. Have a voice yes. <laughs> yeah, he has a voiceover and a title crawl at the same time, which I think sets the tone perfectly for what the rest of this film is going to be. Just Doesn't Highlander have that as well? Does it? Or a Blade Runner, one of the bad cuts of Blade Runner, I think, has that. I will say one thing, though. Whoever cut the trailers for these films earned his paycheck, because watch those again, yeah. those still look good, and it is amazing. He has taken the best, like, he took the shots that were actually framed pretty well and where the effects look good he cut them together nicely he even cut frames out of some of the effects shots to make give them more impact he earned his money mm. he still makes it look like a good movie it's amazing yeah i i think it actually worked in reverse i think they did the trailer first and then they took the trailer and cut it up and tried to fill in the bits in between <laughs> <laughs> that would make more sense the power to control the elements is bestowed upon a chosen few. The Fire Nation has declared war. But some believe there is still hope. I always knew you return. You are the only one who can control all the elements and bring peace to our world. I will stop them. You may already be too late. in peace until I find him. There are reasons each of us are born. We have to find those reasons.
Okay, hang on, hang on. Before we get into the frenzied shivering of this squealing hog monkey, and I ask you all, ladies and gentlemen, once again, to keep this as PG-rated as possible, let's look at the things they get right. From the very beginning, the intro choreography where it's like, earth, fire, air, water, they didn't have to do that, but they did it. And that was a little touch which I actually liked. It's nice that it's there, but it doesn't look good. <laughs> it's no, not, it doesn't yeah. frame good. It's, it's not framed well. It's not cut well or edited. It's just like it's a nice thought, but it feels just very shallow and surfacey because it's not executed nicely. True. It, Bear it, with me, man. I had to find like three things to say. <laughs> no, I, like, no, no, I had a hard, I, I found like, one there. or two things, and even they are like backhanded <laughs> insults. Honestly, I will give one compliment. I kind of like the design of Ang's tattoo. I agree. Oh, no. What? what? <laughs> I hate the design of his yeah. static. I think it's really messy. It wouldn't look as good to just have a straight-up blue arrow going all the way over his body. Wouldn't it? Are you sure? No. <laughs> <laughs> not in, in live action, I'm not sure. Are you sure about that? You don't want to reconsider on that I'm one. not disagreeing with you, Jerome. I'm actually... I'm. I'm in I'm all seriousness, in, all of us to ask this question of ourselves right now. In live action, I don't think that would have worked. I kind of like the fact they tried to do this sort of henna sort of. Easiest way to tell is if we find pictures of Ang cosplayers and see what they look like. Hang on. Basically, the best Ang cosplay is going to look like what they could possibly have done on film. Oh, mind you, actually, that one's pretty good. Okay, it, it would look more cartoony. That would appear to go against their remit of making this... It, it seems like they're trying to make this for adults because they threw all the humour and the kiddiness out the window and they made everyone deliver their lines with extreme seriousness. So you'd imagine they're trying to appeal to young adults. It's, they don't know who their audience is. They're trying to appeal to the va- fans as well as to the people who've never seen it or have known nothing about it. Mm. It's just, it's over-designed. It's too much. There's too many patterns and stuff going on in there. I just liked the simplicity of the blue arrow. And I understand what Jerome is saying. Maybe the blue arrow would look a bit cartoony in uh, live action. But they could have, they didn't have to go that far. They could have just had a very simple design in the arrow. Not this overcomplicated mess that looks... It just looks bad. Are it, you talking about the tattoo oh, or the film? The film. In, <laughs> nice. uh, oh, both, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's not what actually even bothered me about a tattoo. is the fact that it didn't all connect and flow through his body. Mm-hmm. Like, he kind of woke up. That's what I love about the It's about each point of his body being connected to these points. If you know what I mean. It's fully flowing all down to his, the bottom of his legs, down his arms, all down his back. It's all connected. Whereas in a film, it didn't feel as connected. Okay, let's talk about a few other things that they did right. Um, Ang is friendly and looks about right, whether you like his tattoo or not. Does he look about right? He looks about the right age. (laughs) You got the age right. He's bald. He looks looks okay, and he does very much sell capable martial artists in his movements. That is because he is a capable martial artist. I know, because that's the only thing, that's the only reason he got the job, but like, when I watch something like the Kill Bill films, like, I really, like, love them, they're great, but, like, Uma Thurman, I never buy as being a capable fighter. Like, I see, like, she knows the moves, but maybe it's just because I've done martial arts stuff or because I analyze movement for a living, but I never see the precision or the control or the full, I never see somebody who, like, 
there's some people you can watch the way they move and it's just like they are in full control of their body and I never get that from her with him like see, seeing him do some of these bending and forms and stuff he is clearly very capable at that at least if nothing else the problem is he's not a particularly good actor no I'd agree I would actually yeah. I, I wish they would have hired a somebody who could do the acting part and then just given him six months to learn enough martial arts to get by because it would kind of work for Aang, too, because Aang's very loose and tumbly and out of control a bit at times, and just, uh, it would, I think it would, could work and fit. Well, ultimately, M. Night Shyamalan is very good at, oh god, I can't even say teasing really good performances out of his actors, because he can't. So many of his films, up after The Sixth Sense, everyone just delivers their lines in this awful wooden way, and don't speak like real people would speak. So I can't even say he's a character actor. Joaquin Phoenix is an excellent actor, and he was... Bollards. Signs. You can't say bollards. There are children present. Sorry, presents. and he was awful in signs. Okay, so yeah, ultimately, he's not a martial arts director, so getting in a martial artist and trying to sort of make up for the shortfall means you are then required to be good at filming martial arts. Yeah. Otherwise, it's not worth it. I mean, so, and it wasn't against no other martial artist doesn't make much sense. That's true, actually. Everyone yeah. else's choreography in this film is awful. Yeah, that, 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 that's the thing that's really missing for me in this movie is that Action. in the animated show. Those fights are superbly cho yeah. uh, choreographed, especially when you get into the back half of season three. Mm. Um, and these fights just feel like somebody filmed a martial arts competition from yeah. the stands. Just well, there are a million films with martial arts in them. Yeah. And so many we've got to choose from. So you've got to do something to make these things more special. And getting in people who can't do martial arts is not the way! Yeah. I would have much preferred a martial arts film with not as much story than to this. Yeah. If they tried to come at it from the angle of, of looking at proper martial arts films and then trying to make one of those for children. Kung yeah. Fu Panda. Kung Fu Panda yeah. does what... Yeah, there you go. What, ...what these guys were trying to do, and it does it so superbly. I think uh, Kung Fu Panda is a better representation of what <laughs> Avatar could be Agreed. on the screen. I've also yeah, said this before, it's a retelling of Star Wars, and it does that better than the prequels. Yeah. In the end, the Last Airbender series is much more about characters than it is about the fighting or the martial arts anyway, yeah. so in yeah. the long run, getting strong actors and writing these, obviously writing the characters better, but getting strong actors is probably mm. the better tactic, and someone who can write characters. If, yeah. If someone had done this, it would have been amazing. Direct. Oh, I keep name-checking that guy as to who I would love to do to have done this film, and if there's going to be a Korra movie, and frankly, if this show really takes off like it's doing right now, there's going to be a Korra movie. If he's not doing Avengers at the time, Joss Whedon. Especially with Cora, because he's directing teenagers. That's even better. Like, late teenagers. The writing suits him, because it's mm. very much the same kind of... I'm serious when I need to be serious, but I know how to have some fun as well. It does feel like Firefly at times as well. Yeah. I've compared it to Firefly in the past. So, so, folks, if you're still not convinced, but you love Firefly, that should be enough. Seriously. <laughs> Okay. Um, I'll tell you one other good thing about it that I told you, that I tweeted to you last night. Toph is not in it. 
Yes, I, I would actually rather see Toph never in film at all yeah. than done badly in film. But then again, I would rather have seen this never in film at all than. No, agreed. But it's it's the same as like, it's the same way that we can still be grateful that Han Solo was never in the prequels and mm-hmm. not ruined. We can still be glad that Toph has remained untouched. Yeah. We'll talk about Toph in episode three, Earth. I wouldn't go so far as to say I was impressed, but I thought whoever they got to do the costumes mm. did yeah. a pretty good job. I'll give you that. Yeah, I do like the Water Tribe. Uh, costume looks pretty good. For no reason really at all, they made his little red like shoulder thingy into like a cloak. Yeah. I'm gonna say something that's kind of awkward, but or a Jedi kind robe. Of, kind of annoyed me in the movie. Mm-hmm. The whole of Water Tribe is Eskimo, except for these three white people. Yep. <laughs> we had a very long discussion about that today. <laughs> kind of weird. If you if you Google. Inuit actor. The Caucasians who played soccer and guitar come up. Now that surely oh, means that yeah. there aren't that many for them to choose it's, from. No, it's, it's, to be fair, it's mainly because there are a lot, and I mean a lot, of people blogging about the fact that they're playing Inuit characters and they're not, they're not overly happy about that fact. There was a huge... <laughs> kerfuffle about racism regarding this film uh, and about the notion that the it's a very multicultural series and there's some very specific cultures but having oh, cultural influences portrayed in the series so for example the earth kingdom very much influenced by china the fire nation very much influenced by japan the uh, northern and southern water tribes very much influenced by inuit and the air nomads tibetan and for no real given reason, Shyamalan and company, because I don't just want to blame him, seem to have woven Indian in mythology into the Fire Nation. And um, quite a lot of Caucasian into <laughs> the, um, the Inuit of the, the water tribes. So I think you hmm. actually... Th- you hit on something that I didn't identify before actually when you said multicultural Shyamalan's justification of the fact that there are uh, people of different skin tones in this film is what it comes down to yes there are lots of people of lots of different colours in this film but where's the culture where's all the cultural references that were so essential to the TV show yeah they're just they're not there they're there isn't enough depth for them to, to go into any of it. Um, and, and when they do add the occasional thing in, it's, it's handled very ham-fistedly and very inappropriately. One of the first scenes which made me grit my teeth tremendously, largely because of the, the expositionary angle of it, is where um, Soka, or Soka, 
and Katara are walking out on the ice, and he's basically telling her how he hunts. She would know that. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't need to explain to her that he's looking for footprints in the flipping snow. I mean, for goodness sake, anybody who's ever followed a squirrel through a park can probably figure it out. Having said that, they do have a big discussion about waterbending at the beginning of the animated show, which seems somewhat fatuous if Katara's been doing that for years. In an interview with the Washington Post, uh, Shyamalan said, Anime is based on ambiguous facial features. It's meant to be interpretive. It's meant to be... By the way, he just classed um, Avatar as anime. It's meant to be inclusive of all races, and you can see yourself in all these characters. This is a multicultural movie, and I'm going to make it even more multicultural in my approach to its casting. There's African-Americans in this movie, so it's a source of pride for me. He's pointing out the fact that there don't appear to be any African... Were you angered by that, Jerome? No, not really. No African-Americans in the series. Right, so it's a source I'd of pride for me. I'd be concerned if there were. <laughs> <laughs> the irony that protesters would label this with anything but the greatest pride, that the movie poster has Noah and Dev on it, and my name on it, I don't know what else to do. Rathbone, you know, the white guy who was in Twilight, was also one to dismiss the complaints in an interview with MTV, saying, I think it's one of those things where I pull my hair up, shave the sides, and I definitely need a tan. It's one of those things where hopefully the audience will suspend disbelief a little bit. Yeah, um, um, you could say the same thing about a blackface routine. The controversy wasn't well received by critics either. Film critic Roger Ebert was one of the critical voices against the casting when asked about casting a white cast to portray the characters. He said, the original series, Avatar The Last Airbender, was highly regarded and popular for three seasons on Nickelodeon. Its fans take it for granted that its heroes are Asian. Why would Paramount and Shyamalan go out of their way to offend these fans? There are many young Asian actors capable of playing the parts. Jevon Phillips of the Los Angeles Times noted that despite Shyamalan's attempts to defuse the situation, the issue will not fade away or be overlooked and that the film exemplifies the need for a debate within Hollywood about racial diversity in its films. Now that kind of underlines for me the idea that even though you could go on for quite some time about the fact that there were plenty of roles that could have been taken by actors more suited to these particular cultural reference points, because it's yeah. one of the things that's offensively bad about the film, but it's full of offensively bad things, that is symptomatic of a larger issue and does actually need to be talked about. I mean, and I kind of understand Shyamalan's point about the vagueness in, in anime features, and that makes sense. Like I said, I have a hard time getting too wound up about it because the rest of, like you said, the rest of the film is so broken. And the Avatar world has always Wouldn't felt... Have fixed everything else if they're, if no, they're no. like, oh, at least Ong was Asian. Definitely not, no. I mean, any world of Avatar has always felt like a bit of a cultural mishmash anyway. Like, yes... Everyone speaks nation, in an American accent, for yeah, well, there's Well, there's that. But, and, like, every nation, like you said, oh, has... Oh, to Kai. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that one later. He's only in it one episode, but he's just great fun. Carry on. Oh, yeah. Like you said, each of the nations have kind of a single have a main influence, but there's a lot of other cultures woven into each nation as well. Mm. And I feel like, like Heimdall and Thor, if the resulting character was awesome, you would have heard no complaints. Like you could have gotten away with it, yeah. but it's, but especially with Katara and Sokka and Sokka, look, I even, I'm doing it. Even you are not, <laughs> especially with Katara and Sokka. Like you've got two lead characters who are already beloved by fans who clearly aren't pasty white kids. That is such an awesome chance to give someone who isn't another pasty white kid a major blockbuster role, which is just a disappointing missed opportunity. Like, I'm not mad about it on the whole, but especially with those two, it really feels like that was an opportunity. It put out a call for Inuit young actors. There's probably about 100 in the world. 
at least give them a chance before you start hiring the little white kids who can get every role under the sun. Or at least there's never going to be a shortage of little white kids in films. Or at least hire talented white kids. (laughs) Cruel but true. Were these kids capable of actually um, having any talent? It was missed by everyone else. The actors who played Fire Nation are mostly played by Indians. M. Night Shyamalan is, of Mm. course, of Indian descent. And the Fire Nation yeah. is a traditional villain. I mean, you know, why do you think Shyamalan decided that? I, is he trying to exercise his own personal demons? <laughs> ah, no. It's not as um, deep as that. I mean, once I got cast as uh, Zuko, uh, basically, uh, obviously, the person that plays my father, the person that plays my uncle, becomes, um, you know, so they need to look like they're related to me. In, right. in, in a sort of way and you know it made sense you know tr- they're trying to make it you know echo you know certain parts of real life uh, you know as much as possible so if you think about the world today you know you're going to get a majority of different looking people if you go to Africa or India whereas if you come to you know if you go to China and so you know there's four nations in this world and I think everyone's represented uh, right. you know every culture and if you go if the film does go to the sequels you're going to see a lot more you know, more Asian characters, and, uh, you know, you're talking about, uh, you know, there's so many different people that are going to be coming to the film, but it's, again, a story about not judging a book by its cover, and if you think of my character, in essence, he's not really a villain, so when people say, ah, oh, he was just a villain, or, you know, he wasn't villainous enough, uh, you know, you just weren't really looking at the character enough, because he's, my character in particular is a, not really a villain, and right. he has a potential to be, you know, a hero, maybe. I do want to see the future chapters. Congratulations again, and um, good Thanks luck, Mr. Dev. Thank you. Did you hear that? He called him Mr. Dev. Good Thanks luck, Mr. Dev. Brilliant. Anything else that was good about this film? <laughs> I thought the uh, Northern Water Tribe section was well realized in terms of it. It felt like there was an actual big set there, even if it was 98% green screen. Is it just me? Uh, while we're on the Northern Water Tribe, um, mm. during the siege... Was there a bit where M. Night Shyamalan was trying to ape the two towers? Because yep. there's a scene yeah. where yeah. all the Water Tribe soldiers are on the wall and they're like uh, banging their spears and stuff like that and the mm. guy's giving his war cry. And it's like, wait a minute, this is filmed very similar to a scene in the two towers, except I don't care about any of you. Yeah. To yeah. be fair, there is a scene in the show where they pan down and you have an aerial view of the the Northern Water Tribe city, and it's... Kind of Minas Tirith? It's it's patently Minas Tirith. I mean, the the comparisons are definitely there with Lord of the Rings. Again, this is a bit like Helm's Deep. He's definitely not a terrible bit of the film. Again, in the show, it feels more like a nod, more like an acknowledgement that this is one of the things that they're inspired uh, inspired by. In the film, it seems more like... He, he, he's just copying it. He's borrowing imagery, hoping to get some of the emotional impact, but failing. But does anybody else kind of laugh at the, with Zhao's death, just the little four-man water tribe death squad that walks yeah. in? Out of yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we just come yeah, in like, they just dodge a firebolt. They look like, like badass cowboys walking into a saloon. <laughs> they straight up murder the guy and then turn and walk away as if there was an explosion happening behind him. It's like <laughs> just a man drowning. Yeah, it just didn't sit well for me. It just didn't fit at all. For no, it doesn't. It, but it, it's it, murderous. Oh. It was. <laughs> they took out the whole water spirit coming yeah. up. 
Which, like, I can understand, fine, if you want to cut out yeah. the whole Koizilla thing, then just have Zhao, like... Fall in the water. Yeah, like, have him fall in the water, or, like, have him refuse to run away from Aang's big, huge wave, or have him kind of be falling off the bridge into the water, and Zuko tries to save him, but Zhao refuses to be and falls in. There's something to tie it in. Don't bring in a water tribe death squad out of nowhere to come to the... The, the, thing, that was, the thing that was great about the show is is that his death in the show feels like he sealed his own fate. This is a, a direct result of his actions. Whereas totally. in the film it's just like, oh, hi, hi waterbenders. Oh, uh, oh, lovely. Thank you for killing me. It's just... it. It removes that like poetic justice that the series had. It, it has a feeling of you're on the wrong side of town, buddy. <laughs> sort of like you. <laughs> <laughs> we don't, we don't take that. Charlie Jane Anders, in the review by io9, criticised the personality-free hero, the nonsensical plot twists, the CG clutter, the bland romance, the New Age pablum, concluding that Shyamalan's true achievement in this film is that he takes the thrilling cult TV series Avatar The Last Airbender and systematically leeches all the personality and soul out of it in order to create something generic enough to serve as an universal spoof of every epic ever. And has summarized the experience of watching the film by stating that actually, my exact words when I walked out of the film were, wow, this makes Dragon Ball Evolution look like a masterpiece. Peter Bradshaw of The Guardian noted an unfortunate linguistic problem that reduced British viewers to a state of nervous collapse. Colloquially, the word bender is slang for homosexual male, giving an entirely different meaning to lines such as, I could tell at once that you were a bender and that you would realize your destiny. Bradshaw commented that the response from his audience to such lines was definitely immature and would inevitably re- be repeated in every cinema in the land showing The Last Airbender. That's depressing. But uh, ev- this is something that uh, us folks in Britain are going to come up against every time we start trying to suggest this show to other people because it's a barrier. It's basically, it's Dan, it's the equivalent of, uh, of him being called The Last Air Fag. Oh gosh! Yeah, that's that's a that's a hump to overcome. I was yeah. going to say people might have got it out of their systems with Futurama, but in all fairness, the people who are going to snigger at it probably aren't watching Futurama and wouldn't get it. I mean, even Paul Shotton, our beloved mascot, now finds the, the just the, the title of this hilarious. I believe he and his entire audience watched the uh, trailer for a show that none of them had actually ever watched, and then howled with laughter when the title came up. Is that why it was just called Legend of Ang in this country? Uh, principally, that might have been one of the reasons. That would make sense. Yeah. Uh, one other thing that they actually got right, which is, and this is a very rare occurrence, which the cartoon got wrong. All I'll say is Princess Yuri's hair goes black. That was a nice touch. Mm. That was a nice touch. And that's something oh. that was going to happen in the animated show and didn't. Something gone, Princess Yue. Yeah. The character who played her in the movie, the actor the who played her in the movie, actually got a part in the next series. Yeah, she was Thank a God. huge fan of uh, the Legend of Aang and uh, went on to voice Asami, um, who has got a lovely, deeply attractive voice uh, in uh, Legend of Korra. However, in the film, her character, <laughs> which is astonishingly dismissive about absolutely everything. Things happen dispassionately and goes, I have to go somewhere. Take me there, sucker. They go away. They come back. We don't know where they went. Which they, I, think, they were, no, I think that her performance in that movie and then in Legend of Korra is 
shows just how much a great script and a great director affects an actor's performance. In The Legend of Korra, she's great. She's She's very good. Yeah. In this film, she's like a wet fish, you know. She felt very much like Alba. Yeah, if the Star Wars prequels proved anything, is that no number of great actors can save a horrible script. Yeah. That's, those films are packed with great actors. Portman, Christopher Lee, Terence Stamp, Liam Neeson, Jake Lloyd. I mean, the list goes on. Actually, on that note, um, Soccer is Obi-Wan in this. Young Obi-Wan in Phantom Menace. Katara is pretty much Padme. Ang is young Jake Lloyd Anakin. Zuko is angry Hayden Christensen Anakin. Iroh is Qui-Gon Jinn. Zhao is General Grievous. And Ozai is Darth Tyrannus. Not even managing. Not even managing to be as scary or as mad. Because that would have been something as Darth Sidious. Like I said, this, this, this feels like another one of Lucas's prequels. Just in terms of how, how limp and lacklustre and, and just sort of churned out it is. And the effects supervisor was on episode two, Attack of the Clones, which would explain how they were able to cut and paste so many effects in and have actors acting against green screen. I say acting against green screen. Moving against green Moving screen. Moving against green, green screen. Yes, appearing against green screen. You know what makes it even worse? They constantly slowed down and zoomed on all the CG stuff. Mm. making it even worse. This was one of those retconned 3D jobbies where they they made it 3D after the fact. Uh-huh. And uh, James Cameron himself uh, expressed... Um, he already had a, a bugbear about the film as it was because, as we all know, he released a little film called Avatar around about the same time as this thing. And uh, there was a, a dispute for several years in Hollywood uh, regarding over who was going to get the rights to actually have the name Avatar. Cameron claimed that he had uh, come up with the name Avatar sometime in the 80s when he came up with this idea. And, of course, this, the Avatar show had been going for several years with this established name. Now, in retrospect, I actually think Cameron's film should have been called something else entirely. Yeah. Because, ultimately, just Avatar would have worked so much better for this than simply calling it The Last Airbender. It would probably have gotten more business in Britain. But then again, it doesn't need or deserve more business. No, it doesn't. So there's many other things that should have been different. However, the problem is that whenever I talk about Avatar, people are like, the, no, not that Avatar. So if I ever, ever mention it, I will refer to that as James Cameron's Avatar. I would okay. actually recommend, like, I wouldn't recommend it. I would suggest that this is a movie worth watching as a lesson or as a, like, if you're interested in film at all or analysis, Watching that side by side with the show mm. is a great way to like just analyze and see how wrong Not to do go- things. Yeah, like how ama- like astoundingly wrong something can go. Like something that was great, how bad that can become in the wrong hands, done poorly. It that's, is astounding. That's true. Actually, there's a few scenes, um, quite a few scenes, where you can take a direct parallel from the show and look at how it's been translated and you mm. can you can see where and it's for me it was mostly down to the lines I think because script and dialogue and narrative are always going to be my my big thing to pick at if it's wrong but one of the things I picked up on was there's a, there's a conversation between Sokka and the analogue of, of Yue's father um, in the film. Yeah, because there was no Yue's father, it was just... Which, which they explain away with just a throwaway line, somewhere, oh, oh, I heard the princess's father was dead. 
As was her fiancé, because he's not in it either. I think it's going to be Paku who's got responsibility for her. And instead of, as in the show, um, Sokka being explicitly asked to look after her by her father, um, and it's there's sort of this little unspoken thing about he'll protect her because of how he feels about her... Um, Paku says he needs somebody to, vol- to, to guard Princess Yue. Sokka says, I'll do it. He says, oh, I thought you might volunteer. There's almost a big hairy wink after he says that. Why? I, I don't get why you needed to change the way those lines were said and what was said. And it just, it, that epitomised quite well for me, the difference between the, the dialogue in the show and the dialogue in the film. Big hairy uh, wink is on Nerf Herder cover band. <laughs> Another scene that I want to reference uh, that, that's a direct parallel to the show is how uh, Sokka and um, Katara discover Aang. Um, mm. In the series, uh, uh, Katara and Sokka are out fishing or hunting, and um, then Sokka, Sokka says something really sexist to Katara, and Katara yeah. gets really mad and accidentally waterbends the ice behind her, mm. and they just. Discover Ang, and they're like, "Oh my God, there's someone in there. We have, we have to save them." In the TV show, uh, not the TV show, in the, in the movie, um, so- uh, Soka um, sees a light underneath them and thinks, "Oh, there's a light. I'm a bang <laughs> on the ice that is supporting our weight and stopping fro- us from falling into the water to oh, discover oh. what it is." Isn't he super cautious about everything? Like, yeah. stay away from it. Don't touch. Yeah. So this is kind of a character inconsistency, you say? Yeah. And also but it takes away the fact that Katara is the one who brings Aang back to the world. Yeah. As I always say, this is the first film that ever brought out nerd rage in me. <laughs> I, I, I know how difficult it is for you to achieve, attain rage, as, as easy as it is for me to attain rage, but, um, but that's saying something, Jerome. Mm. Struggling to explain reasons for spiritual power equals... Midi-chlorians. Obviously, to make this film work, a lot has to be cut out and a lot has to be streamlined. Given. But, but yeah, but... And squeezing so much story and characterization into a small runtime requires a lot of efficiency. Mm. This this is all the wrong kind of efficiency in the, yeah. way it, in the way it works. There's tons of just... We don't have time to characterize. We have to get all this exposition out. We don't have time to show anything. We just will give two or three lines of narration and just get to the next scene, get to the next scene. Characters are literally saying, we have to go a lot. Not saying where they have to go. We just have to go. This scene's running on too long. Yes. Go, go, Carl go, fast, hurry. Twice. We have to go. Why? Where? What for? It's like, yeah, this scene is going on too long. We need to hurry. It's, it's like the whole film is a ticking time bomb and it's got a 90-minute timer. <laughs> it really is. It's editing hot potato. It, the 90-minute the 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 runtime, I might add as well, it seems entirely arbitrary. People will sit through a two-and-a-half-hour epic action Harry Potter film. Why make it 90 minutes? It can't be just to cram in more shows per day. I know that's a marketing ploy. But surely, the, if it's going to break the film... It's not worth it. And, and Shyamalan has been quoted as saying, I am used to working on a 90-minute scale. I know you're used to it. That doesn't mean you have to still stick to that. And it's not like that scale has always made great movies for you. No. So I was going to like, yeah, make the comparison to Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, two things that had to condense a large, large-scale body of work into small little chunks 
and had to cut out lots of little things here and there. And some people were like sad about some stuff they got cut. But in the end, the work as a whole is exemplary. Mm. That is exactly what that kind of translation from one medium from a different medium into film should look like. This is exact is a perfect example of that transition done wrong in every way. This this film is nega perfection in that way. The so worst thing is that's why I the, recommend people to see it because it is a great example. <laughs> do not do this. The worst thing is the thing that takes away all their excuses is that adapting an, a novel to the screen is hard, hard, hard work because you have no nothing to reference it on. The best they had was the Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings and the radio plays and like this is how you can uh, can adapt it. Um, and, and with Harry Potter, they had nothing. They had to go from scratch and do the first Harry Potter book into the first Harry Potter film. This, they have not only the whole thing storyboarded for them, but scripted in such a way as the delivery is exactly right to appeal to a broad audience. There is no excuse. You could actually take the key events that happen in this film and edit together an Avatar movie from the first series, just taking those key oh, moments and add extra. Somebody do that, there. please. <laughs> I, I, it wouldn't be better than watching it, but it'd be far better than watching the, well, the, the film. Nickelodeon did actually. They used to do marathons where they aired certain parts as movies. Ah, especially the Winter Solstice. It's definitely achievable. But at the same time, it would still feel choppy and you wouldn't get the depth of character development. There are ways within cinema to give key moments to these characters to let them shine in their own little way. Avengers did that. Absolutely. In Lord of the Rings, you only need two-minute conversation between Frodo and Gandalf to understand the core of those characters. And you'll, you'll get more details about them later on, but you know them instantly. And these characters, you get to know nobody. And there is a way to impart things that need to be known about the world and about the characters through elegant dialogue. And I say this from experience because I just had to really tighten up my script for Batman Breakdown to really get across what needs to be known about these characters to just someone coming in cold. And I've never been particularly fantastic at dialogue, but I now know what it takes to actually go, right, this line is totally fatuous and clumsy. It needs to be taken out or re-edited to something better. And that was not done. I'm Chris Underwood for Reels Channel on the Century Rio 24 to check out the first fans for the last Airbender. And I must say, this is my favorite first fan so far. It sucked. It sucked. It's terrible. It's horrible. I really didn't like it. Pretty much like they skipped through the entire movie pretty much. They rushed the entire thing. Like it didn't like explain things fully. The movie could have been as bad as it is right now. And if they had just called him Aang once! Just back away, really slow. Aang! It was too rushed, dude. They didn't have enough detail in it. They skipped a lot of things. The acting wasn't good. The characters really screwed up each other's names. You don't take the main character and change his name. No, no, you don't. It's such a letdown. His name is Aang. I gotta tell you, I've never been more disappointed in a movie. I'll be happy that they said Aang once. Aang! I thought that um, it kind of sucked if you like av- uh, like Avatar the show. I don't actually think M. Night Shyamalan has ever even seen this show. I want my money back. Wow. And I actually wish I had my hair back, too. We recently saw the midnight premiere of Eclipse, and we're big fans of that, but I think this was definitely better than that. I should have gone and seen Twilight. I don't want to diss it. It was bad. Don't go see it. I want to tear down M. Night Shyamalan. I think they took out the best parts of this movie. Momo. I never heard the name Momo once. June wasn't in the movie. 
I should have been. There was a young lady dressed as a Kyoshi warrior, and she has actually taken the costume off because she wasn't even in the movie. And just so can I can point out, we have a line of people that I think that... I don't think... Did any of you guys like the movie? No! Yeah, they didn't like it. No, sir. I didn't like it. For real, channel, I'm Chris Underwood, and I'll see you next week. I'll tell you one like, thing. Unless I'm mistaken, he never said yip yip. I, I feel like that movie... He was given, like, a sheet of things that needed yeah. to be in the movie. And Yip Yip wasn't yeah. on it. Definitely looks like nobody will actually watch the show. He did claim and says that his daughter loved the show and wanted to dress up like a tower for Halloween. That was what first got him into it. And so and, and there's, I showed you the, the interview he has with, with Mike and uh, Brian. The, the, he seems to, he was like, yeah, and now it's always on in our house and we love it and it's great and we watched it back to back and it's great and the whole family loves it. And it's, well, at, at what point, and he even pronounces it Ang in that discussion, <laughs> at what point did he decide that Ang was an acceptable pronunciation and that he was going to ensure that everyone said it exactly the same way, wrong every time? Ang Soka and Uncle Hero. I think the worst thing about that movie is that it, like the Golden Compass, it negates the possibility of that movie being done right. Well, because it exists, it's going to take ages for them to remake it, and if they have to, the, the possibility of a reboot is lessened by the fact that it was so poorly received. For me, the problem was until I heard about Legend of Korra, this was where the le- legend of Aang ended, Finished, which is where yeah. ever t- Avatar would ever stop, because they were With never going to get another movie because of how bad it was, and nobody was going to go check out the series because they ruined this introduction. Yeah. I was lucky enough to come to the series much later, yeah. and the legend of Korra was just around the corner. Yeah. So, for me, my thoughts <laughs> of the show have just remained positive lucky. throughout, even after seeing the movie. Because Legend of Korra exists, it means that it's just kind of a silly little thing that I hope everyone forgets about. Especially because Legend of Korra is so good. Yeah. Um, and if it carries on at the quality it's at, and I start to slowly get as attached to the cast as I am to the last, the previous cast, it mm. might actually surpass the Legend of Aang. Well, I, in fact, I'm more than confident that it eventually will. I love that. I love those two, Michael DiMartino and Brian Kanitsko. <laughs> I bloody love them. They're great. I love the fact that they they are the two people in the world who are getting the break, as well. No other frustrated creator with such a brilliant idea on their hands gets to do this. Really, Joe Rowling. Um, uh, the fact that Peter Jackson, after fighting to the point where he looks like an emaciated golem himself, is finally going to get him to not only do The Hobbit, but add an extra film to the Pantheon. Yeah. That's brilliant. But Christ, look at what that has done to this poor man. He used to be a chubby, roly-poly, hairy, cheerful chappy, and now he looks drawn and emaciated and uh, straggly-haired and... Uh, it's it's like Frodo at the end of uh, of the Lord of the Rings that you know making these films has taken its toll on him, but Brian and Michael, they're just having a blast and being given the right amount of praise and the right amount of encouragement and the right amount of backing by the studios, which is unheard of. 
You know, this is Nickelodeon. They cancelled Invader Zim after giving it way, frankly, way more than it probably really needed. Because it's it's a twisted, weird cartoon. It doesn't really fit with children's entertainment. But Nickelodeon's always been a weird one when it comes to... They'll fund something for a very long time and you never know quite why. They, I, Nickelodeon seemed to say yes to everything and then regret it immediately <laughs> after. Throw enough stuff to the wall, something's going to stick. This yeah. is going in the show, honey. You can't say Sorry. that. If you thro- oh, never mind. <laughs> I can't think of a way to rephrase that that's clean. I'll just <laughs> you. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> Hi, I'm Brian Konitsko, co-creator of Avatar, The Last Airbender. Hi, I'm Mike DiMartino, the other co-creator of Avatar. Hi, I'm M. Night Shyamalan. I'm the director of the motion picture, Avatar, The Last Airbender. Tonight, how did you first learn about Avatar, The Last Airbender? Um, actually, from my daughter, who's seven, and she was obsessed with this show, but I really didn't pay attention to what she was, you know, obsessed about. She's like, oh, this is this show after? I'm like, okay, honey, we're going to go out, and it's on again, it's on again. And I was like, okay, okay, I'll put it on for you. And then for Halloween, she wanted to be Katara. And I'm like, she, you know, that's what she, she wanted to be. And I was like, what is this Katara thing? And so she told me all about it, and we had to, like, look it up and all this stuff. Still, it hadn't hit. And then one day we were in um, the video store, and, and she said, can we, oh, the first season's on DVD, can I get it? And I was like, okay, she really loves this, let's watch. So we, we all had dinner, and the four of us watched it. The whole family sat down and watched it. We just kept watching the next episode, the next episode, and we came up in the kitchen, and, and I opened the fridge up, and I said, this would make a great movie. And then everybody was like, yeah! <laughs> no! No, 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 no! No! That's how it started. Try to grasp these amazingly contradictory statements to the final product if you've actually seen the movie. Ask yourself, what went wrong? So how do you guys feel about a movie being made about your show? We're really excited. Um, Brian and I have been working on this story and this series for about five years now so to see it kind of go into this this new realm and of live action and the level of detail and to have you involved is is very exciting we always strive for a really cinematic look on the show you know doing it in tv it's always a challenge it's really hard so it's going to be great to see this story and these characters taken to their fullest visual potential are you a fan of any japanese anime tv shows or movies Actually, um, I'm a big fan of Miyazaki movies, which I know you guys are yeah. really influenced by in our family. We really, we really love those movies. In fact, he's like one of my favorite film directors. He's amazing. Dude, I spoke to Miyazaki. He said, and I quote, you know nothing of my work. So the three seasons of Avatar is roughly, you know, 30, 30 hours of story. Right. How are you going to condense that down into, you know, a trilogy of six hours or, or so? Yeah, it's been it's been really hard for me because I really love what you guys did and and I'm finding it really hard to let go of anything and and at first when I put um, you know the outline together I showed it to you guys and it basically had every single thing you guys wrote it was a seven hour movie and, I, and you guys were very sweet and said you know you're gonna have to take out some <laughs> stuff and I'm like no not that not that but I think I've gotten to the place where I really know um, how to bring in the characters and and what characters we can save for the other movies and what moments we could save for the other movies so it's really starting to take shape into a, a two-hour movie for me and I think that'll happen for each of the three movies 
I hope. <laughs> you know, this is the first movie I'm directing um, that didn't come from an idea of mine, and it's um, really the first time ever I felt in love, you know, w to the point where I was like, I'm going to give my life for, as it turns out, six years to this project and um, it, it really is going to be everything to me for the next six years so it's uh, it's a it's a life it's a life passion and, and in, in many ways it'll be um, maybe the biggest thing that I, that that I, I'll ever do well we thank you for your enthusiasm and appreciate all your hard work and we look forward to the avatar live-action movie hey thank you guys for making the, the, the coolest mythology I've ever ever seen thanks Watching that interview earlier, I was like, oh, this sucks. <laughs> well, as in, like, how did he get there? It's just the way he was saying, oh, my daughter found the DVD arc, we borrow it, can we, can we rent it from this shop? And we got it home, and we all sat and watched it all as a family. It just sounded like he was talking utter rubbish. It just, I didn't believe a word of it. Neither did I. He seemed very... Well, everything that we now know seems uh, to contradict what he was saying. Yeah. And I really hate the way that Brian and uh, uh, Michael have to look up to him during yeah. that interview. Isn't as in, like, oh, he, he, he's uh, the talented oh. one. The bureau says, oh, if you can't find anyone to cast Ang, maybe I could play him. It's excruciating. They're like, oh, yeah, okay. That's, yeah. yeah, okay. That's Can we bit. leave now? Yeah. <laughs> Avatar of the Last Airbender co-creators Mike D. Martino and Brian Conicho voiced their opinion within an interview regarding M. Night Shyamalan writing, directing and producing the film. The two displayed much enthusiasm over Shyamalan's decision for the adaptation, stating that they admire his work and in turn he respects their material. <laughs> Producer Frank Marshall explained that they have high hopes to stick to a PG rating. I'm not even sure we want to get to the PG-13 realm. I agree with that. Actually, yeah. I think that this you know, stay yeah. PG doesn't have to get what... I mean, he said that the next one was going to be dark. Earth doesn't have to be dark. <laughs> Make it all about Toph, for the love of God. Furthermore, Shaman said, I took away a little bit of the slapsticky stuff that was in there for little, little kids. The fart jokes and things like that. Right. Tell me the fart jokes in The Legend of Aang. List them all. And we're done. And we're done. There isn't, M. Night Shyamalan, a single fart joke in the entirety of The Legend of Aang. There were a couple in Korra. They could probably have gone. That's fine. Uh, we grounded Katara's brother. <laughs> I imagine them sending Sokka to his room. <laughs> He's not even calling him Sokka here. Katara's brother. We grounded Katara's brother, and that really did wonderful things for the whole theme of the movie. No, it didn't! Paramount's president, Brad Gray, said that despite the director's career being inconsistent, he believed in Shyamalan's vision and that he could execute it adding that it's a bold step because he had to create a potential new family franchise. The studio was willing to spend $250 million on a trilogy of films, one for each season. The last end of Airbender's budget wound up being $150 million, with $130 million being spent on marketing costs, making it Shyamalan's most expensive film. $130 million is not peanuts. That's a lot of money. That's nearly the same amount of your budget, again, on marketing, which is what they do for things like Transformers. Yeah. And Transformers has made more and more each time, despite the fact that the films have gotten worse and worse. I don't know how this film did so badly, apart from the fact that not enough people knew about the franchise, or those that did hated it. You, the thing, you've got to remember, it, 
they did a movie of some, of series that only finished two years ago. Mm. So the only people who were really going were the fans. Or people who yeah, are curious, who are like, okay, show me what this whole thing was about. But the, the thing also is that the word of mouth from that film was yeah. god-awful. So all the fans came in who loved the show, came out saying it was... Severely low quality. Why would anyone who's not a fan of the show go see it? You can't say the, the S word, would... Josh. <laughs> oh, sorry, is this... Oh, I thought this wasn't yeah. going on. I, yeah, not I thought... done at all. We're never done. But that doesn't account for why Transformers 3 did so much money. It made over a billion. And that film was rubbish. Um, by then, people were too brainwashed to say anything against the movie. <laughs> Even... What's her name? I can't remember her name. Megan Fox. Yeah. <laughs> Even Megan Fox. Even Megan Fox didn't like the second Transformers film. Or the third one. I don't know. I don't care anymore. I've lost all the world to live. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, while I was finishing off watching that film, I became depressed and actually quite angry. Yeah. And stressed out. Because it, it's... It's overflowing with wrong. It should not have been made. Ten and it minutes. shouldn't have been made like that. As I say, I made it into the first ten minutes of it yeah. when I first started and spent an hour trying to call down after it. <sighs> it, didn't, it didn't even make me angry. Depression is rage plus exhaustion. Yeah. And that's how it made me feel. I was shouting at the TV. <laughs> yeah. It made me angry, Jerry. Angry and tired. Clutching onto the arms of my chair, shaking back and forth. No, that's not right. <laughs> Sucker what? doesn't even have his club. He uses his boomerang for the same thing that he uses his club for. They didn't even know he had three different things. Which, for the record, if you hit something with a boomerang, you will destroy its very carefully balanced <laughs> shape which enables it to function as a boomerang I, I was ha having too hard of a time like on one hand I was like frustrated seeing like wow they changed a lot of things and most of these are for like bad changes for no reason it, I was I had the frustrations that it not sticking close to the show but I was also just that was overwhelmed by how baffled I was at how very bad of a film on its own merits it was mm. like like if you can't have the decency to at least like if you if you don't want to make a fan servicey film fine but at least make it something like worthwhile that's serviceable at least yeah. make a decent film yeah like if it may not then it may not be a great thing that represents what the avatar series is but it at least is something strong on its own so and like i was just baffled at how sure the original x men i didn't think it was at all Really, all that faithful to the uh, the original series, yeah. but oh, oh no, I don't even think X Men is all that strong. But carry on. It's not. It's not <laughs> that strong, but it is like it's just bland and it's serviceable. It works. It, it'll well, so if you're not going to make rubbish, at least make something bland. Uh, no, I don't even give it that. With X Men, it's something you still go to the cinema just to see. With Avatar, you stay away from it with a ten foot pole. <laughs> I still can't fathom how this came out. Honestly, like the script, that script is a disaster for this film. Like. I like this is it is like really awkward like fan fiction film writing sort of <laughs> yeah. thing. Like, re no, like, it really is. Like yeah, I'm a didn't stop. I cannot believe so much money got thrown at this on it like that nobody saw this and said like wait let's just, let's try this again. 
It's what they're trying to do with World War Z, because World War Z at the moment is in serious trouble. It's rubbish. Everything about it apparently has broken, and they've had so many problems in the actual filming of it. They've brought in the guy who uh, wrote Prometheus, or one of the guys, to rewrite the script and re-edit it. And this is after they filmed it! (laughs) Wow. The World War Z movie makes me similarly depressed and angry because that movie shouldn't have been made. If they're going to make it that bad and they're going to do such a terrible job on it and it's going to get meddled with by the studio and there's going to be various ideas thrown out, like, you know, core integral parts of it, like let's make it with fast zombies rather than slow ones, then there is a fundamental lack of understanding of the tenets of the original story. I don't mind like making your own story and, and going like chucking this one out the window, but if you're not going to replace those with really strong elements, then you're throwing out something that works and replacing it with something that's broken, which doesn't make sense, and that's a psychopathic thing to do. The thing about World War Z is any one of the stories within it could be a movie in its own right. Mm. So if they were to just take... If they were to turn this, say, into a, like a franchise of movies and just take one of the stories from this book and then really flesh it out into a two-hour movie. Like, for example, the one where um, all those rich people get stuck in that uh, uh, building and all the poor people rush in and... Have a party with lots of ice cream. How good a movie would that be if you were to flesh that out properly and have all these interesting wacky characters in that place that lends itself so well to an ongoing TV series I don't know why that wasn't their decision I don't know why oh the budget there are ways to work around that you have people describing the things that are extremely high budget it's that simple like I said there are I'm now getting to the point of view where certain films like this should not be made and The Last Airbender was one of them and The Golden Compass was one of them and World War Z is going to be one of them. The reviews in America have been pretty harsh, but does that affect the way you move on to number two? Yes. Well, no. You know, the the critics are... I don't know what's going on with me and the critics in the United States. i got to tell you, um, something's going on. They just don't get you. They've never got me, and it's getting worse. They're like, it's almost like, go away. No, M. Night, they get you. The problem is that since The Sixth Sense, which garnered an 85% freshness rating on Rotten Tomatoes, you've been making steadily less powerful films. Unbreakable, 68%. Sign, 74%. The Village, 43%. Lady in the Water, in which you actively baited the press by depicting one of your characters as a miserable, cynical movie critic who gets killed because he doesn't believe in fairies, 24%. The Happening, 18%, and The Last Airbender, 6%. It's not them. It's you. And I think I also think that I'm getting more, uh, you know, influenced by other cultures more, as you can see from the movie. And so I'm not doing like a straight-up American movie anymore. The tonalities are changing. You know, I always had a European sensibility to my movie. So they, the, the pacing is always a little bit off for, for them. You know, and it feels a little stilted, and they need more they need more electricity and all that stuff. And I'm like, this is the way I, I think of things. Because, you know, Hitchcock and Kurosawa and Stanley Kubrick, these are, like, the, my teachers. And uh, so I, it could be a little bit of that, that there's just a little bit of cultural difference. Because, like, you know, I'm, I'm just like on this movie, like, I'm very used to kind of getting on a plane from the U.S., having been savaged by them, and then going to, like, in this case, I went to Japan next. And then they're like, 
Genius. Never ever listen to people who call you a genius. And uh, you know, you can lose your mind a little bit going on Saturday for being an idiot to Sunday being a genius. Being called a genius. Genius. It gives you perspective, you know. But luckily for me, it's not something I can fight. You know, um, it's not my fight to fight. I'm, I'm defenseless. It's the audience. If they choose to fight for me, they fight for me. And and they have uh, through my career. Um, I, I'm honored to have that relationship with them, and I'll keep fighting for that relationship. Um, and maybe 20 years from now, 20 years from now, I'll get a good review. We'll sit here together, and I'll be like, I got a good review. I'll be like, woohoo, high five. <laughs> and I honestly hope that happens. As easy as it is to be snarky and poke fun at this pompous, tedious man-child. Genius! I do believe he has it in him to recapture the energy and emotion of his earliest works. But never, ever give him a license to an established, beloved piece of work. Clearly, adaptation is not his thing. If we haven't gotten across to you guys so far that this is worth it, I would like I would like to reiterate, and I would like to invite you folks to say shows and books and films that it is thematically similar to that that you feel that it, it actually shares a kinship with, and if you like so and so, you'll like Avatar. The first one, which I'm going to say, I'm going to offer this one up, and then I'm going to let you guys carry on, is a TV show from 1982 called The Mysterious Cities of Gold. Okay, right, I don't want to oversell this one. I don't want to say, if you like Avatar, you'll like The Mysterious Cities of Gold. It's the other way around. If you like The Mysterious Cities of Gold, then many of the aspects that you remember and love about that, the deep characterization over 40 episodes, the continuous odyssey of three kids and the closeness that they grow from there is present in Avatar, but it's even more prevalent and textured in Avatar. Uh, For me, I know we were talking about how uh, M. Night Shyamalan called it anime, and it's not really anime. But for me, uh, Avatar... It's inspired by anime. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I was going to say, it represents all the best parts of anime and none of the stuff I really don't like about anime. It it takes the animation of something like uh, Summer Wars, that fluid, really vibrant animation, that that feeling of space, and it's so cinematic. um, And it takes all that stuff, but it doesn't have the... Apart from the comic moments, um, it doesn't have the OTT uh, kind of uh, portrayals that some anime has. Um, I'd also compare it to, as Alex said before, Firefly. A lot of the dialogue reminds me of Joss Whedon's scripts and the characters and the way they interact with each other. It's got the same sort of family dynamic of a growing team, Avatar. That, uh, that throughout this this journey, I, I wish Firefly had had this many episodes. Christ, that would have been good. Um, and stuff we've already talked about, Lord of the Rings. I mean, it definitely has the same scale as Lord of the Rings. I don't know if it has the same style. Uh, Lord of the Rings. Well, Lord of the Rings is a lot more serious. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but the sense of culture that you get from this show. Mm. And the the feeling of an actual world, despite Avatar not actually having an official name for its world, it feels as fleshed out as Middle Earth. Oh, I thought about this, as I said earlier, I'm going to start calling it the Four Nations. Because if we call it something that people who know it will go, oh yeah, that, then it will actually start becoming a thing that people say. I'm going to seed that right now. There's only one other thing I really wanted to say about with regards to the film to the TV series mm-hmm. to 
the bending itself in a film it's so slow and which is like you could easily dodge the attacks it just doesn't seem like they're even trying to fight each other mm. in a TV series it's fast it's fluid it's brilliant it's, it does feel it's, dangerous it's, as well the water in the film just feels like being splashed with water as it was in the show it becomes icy it becomes spikes and it, it's it's done at breakneck speed at times exactly. it's like Spider-Man when the fire, like, it's shot at Ang, it goes across his face, and you can see the pain, the heat in his eyes, just really burning up his skin, trying to get away from it. It's awesome. Oh. I, was bothered, I was bothered by that as well. Like, the effects, like, just credit to the effects teams, like, it looks nice, it looks like the elements and the, and the particles and everything that they're trying to create. Fire but it is being are notoriously impossible to animate. Very much. But it's still, it's not directed well or used properly. Like, when a, like in the show, when the firebender does an attack or a blast or a punch, there is so much impact in this. It's like an explosion when they, mm. like, unleash that. Here, they do, like, a long form of about five or six movements and then kind of like a little wisp of fire, just zoom, <laughs> kind of like across the screen, very lightly. Like, that's... And, what and it has to be the... summoned up and out of one of the glowing braziers that dot exactly. the landscape. There, and like, when uh, when characters do movements, like the the elements or attack will happen like a second or two later. It just feels very limp and weak, and uh, there's just no sense of like you said, quickness or power to it. Uh, the worst example of that is the earthbenders when there's like yeah. five earthbenders oh. <laughs> and they're all doing this elaborate movement and they move. What? <laughs> Whereas in the show, the entire landscape would be shifting and changing as a single Earthbender uh, performs his attacks. Or actually, uh, where the end when Ang should be doing his Koizilla thing, uh, and he's got this enormous tidal wave rising up, and rather than the tidal wave mimicking his sort of Tai Chi-like movements of waterbending, he's doing this little sort of kicky, punchy, flinging his arms about, and nothing is corresponding to his movements. It's like he's like, I could be doing anything right now. Pats his head, rubs his tummy. Actual Ang would do that, <laughs> but it doesn't correspond with a tidal wave. Which is why he should have been Koizilla, or we're doing something... Al- just go into a bubble and control the tidal wave. But that's just one of the many broken elements. Look at Anyone the- else got anything else that this is like? Um, uh, I'd say take the... Ep- like you, like was said before, the epic journey across a big world of Lord of the Rings, but bring but combine that with a main character dynamic relationship like you have in the Harry Potter series with these... Yeah friends and characters that grow up a bit together and you get to know more about them there's lots of recurring characters that come back into the story it's the best of those two things combined into a show that both kids and adults can enjoy but yeah it it feels like every new episode specifically once they hit this stride once they get to earth which is um season two there it feels like every new episode you get something different that's really gonna knock you for six and it, it gets stronger and stronger as it goes on I think we're going to have to we're going to have to say that if the if you're not convinced yet, you're never going to be convinced, and we'll see you at episode 100. Take all of our, all of the bile that we've poured upon the film. The reason that it is such a fr- matter of frustration is because of how charming and like lovable in general this show it is. Just take the inverse of all of the hatred we have poured upon this film. Mm. That is what. That is what you will leave thinking of the TV show when you're done. I will also say, uh, on behalf of Daniel and Sharon and myself, to Josh, thank you.
Yes. Because this was a tough sell for me. I, I watched the first episode on Netflix when you suggested it, and I was like, eh, I guess we can go back to this. And I never really got round to going back to it, and then I stopped subscribing to Netflix. And I was like, ah, oh, I guess I won't be able to get to see Avatar again, and I'm not buying the DVDs. Josh then released the first part of his animation archives show. It was a 24-minute in-depth monologue video about Avatar, which you can find on YouTube and Gonzo Planet. It's extremely persuasive. Folks who have Netflix, you are in luck, because it won't cost you a penny to watch Avatar. Every single episode is on Netflix right now, is that right? Yeah. And they even do some clever things where they um, they combine episodes together, like the oh, season nice. finale. And the, the season finale of season one and the season finale of season three are all combined into one thing. So uh, for one, it's like an hour-long uh, special. Uh, uh, for f- season three, it's effectively a two-hour movie, which is mm. great. If you want to get into this and you don't have Netflix, 12.97 right now should get you... Season one, book one, water. And I believe the next one and the next one are also twelve ninety seven each. I'm a martial arts freak and have been dying to figure out a way I can make a martial arts movie. Something really significant, you know, something different. <laughs> Fire Nation is here. What? And they brought their machines. Can't be coincidence that we break them out of the ice, light shoots into the sky, and now the Fire Nation is here with their machines. And they sent their machines, huge machines made of metal. Is there a spiritual place where I can meditate? There is a very spiritual place. The city was built around this place. Okay, shush now. This is what Avatar actually sounds like. Because we're out of food. Guys, wait. This was in my dream. We shouldn't go to the market. What happened in your dream? Food eats people. Also, Momo could talk. You said some very unkind things. Where are we going to get masks like that? Get your genuine fire festival masks here. That was surprisingly easy. Look, can your fortune telling explain that? Can your science explain why it rains? Yes. Yes, it can. I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to stop recording briefly now and we're going to come back and we're going to record on this same session, book one water, but we will see you in one week's time for that. Okay, so thank you very much, Daniel, Josh, Jerome, Sharon, Duane. Thank you for having us. No worries. No problem. Pleasure. Stick around. Uh, And actually, yeah, I'm going to leave you on the music I used for my trailer for Avatar, which I've called Heartbeat of the Avatar, and I don't know if many people have seen it, but it's actually the music from the movie Dragon the Bruce Lee story which I saw around the time that I finished watching Avatar I just thought this really works if you haven't seen it yet jump to Gonzo Planet and look for Heartbeat of the Avatar it's in the featured articles section for a lovely five minute visual representation of just why you should be watching this show and uh, the music here is The Dragon's Heartbeat by Randy Edelman from the film Dragon the Bruce Lee story We'll see you next week for Book One, Water.